Welcome to the Delight in the Limelight podcast. I'm your host, Linda Ugalo, speaking confidence coach and author of the book, Delight in the Limelight. I'm here to help you transform your experience of speaking from dread to loving it instead, whether that's on stage, on camera, in the media, or the meeting room. If you're looking to work one-on-one with me, go to lindayugalo.com and check out the Work With Me page. There's a tab there to book a conversation. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Today, we are talking about how to make the case for anything and when. My guest is Heather Hansen, a best-selling author and keynote speaker. She combines her experience as a trial attorney with her psychology degree, her mediation training, Mm -hmm. and her time as a TV anchor to help her clients advocate for their ideas, their products, and their services. She's been an anchor at the Law and Crime Network and has appeared on CNN, Fox News Channel, MSNBC and CBS. Oh my gosh. Her book, The Elegant Warrior, How to Win Life's Trials Without Losing Yourself was an Amazon bestseller. Welcome, Heather. Linda, it is so much fun to spend time with you and now with the people that are being served by your podcast and your streaming. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm so excited that you're here because I love both of your books, The um, Elegant Warrior, as I mentioned, and also Advocate to Win. I think they're both super. I feel, you know, I, I'm not sure because it was a while ago when I read them, if I couldn't like pick out, oh, it was this. But, but I remember afterwards feeling bolstered in myself in, in a new and tangible way. And that's what I'm hoping for people here. Oh my gosh, that's the biggest compliment you could give me. If I can help people build belief in themselves, it makes it easier to for them to go out and advocate for themselves. So if I'm bolstering that, that's a phenomenal thing. Yes, yes. So let's start with... Um, what what do you mean by advocating? Yeah, it's a great question because people seem to, I gave a keynote yesterday and they were talking about advocacy as a, like going into Congress and trying to lobby Congress for some changes that they want to make. And sure, that's a form of advocating. But I always give the example, I love the TV show, Ted Lasso. I'm obsessed with it. And so I will tell people wherever I go, if you're not watching Ted Lasso, you need to watch Ted Lasso. I am advocating for Ted Lasso. It is really, the definition in the dictionary is to publicly support something. The way that I talk about it is it's building belief and it's asking for what you want in a way that makes you likely to get it. And it's important that we talk about when we talk about it, both legs of that, asking for what you want in a way that makes you likely to get it. And that's advocating. Wow. I, I like your definition. And and I it makes me want to like unpack both sides of that. Because I think sometimes... The problem for me in asking for what I want is that I don't know what it is. It's such a good point. So this is what I find, Linda. I usually find there's two groups of people. There's either people who don't ask for what they want or they ask and they're like, I, I ask all the time. I'm very aggressive and they don't get it. The people who don't ask for what they want, and it sounds like you fall in that, sometimes it's they don't know what they want and we can address that. Sometimes it's they know what they want, but they're afraid to ask for it or they don't ask for it for a bunch of reasons. I suggest that it's not that you don't know what you want. It's that perhaps you are not ready to really admit it to yourself or to believe that it's possible for you or to own 
your wanting of that thing. That's what I find with the women that I coach. I coach a lot of women on how to ask for what they want and get it. And when they say they don't know what they want, once we play with it a little and do some of the exercises I do, it's clear to me that they know what they want, but they think they're too old or it's too much or it would be too selfish or it's impossible. And if we put all of that aside, all of those doubts aside and we'll overcome them in time, they do know what they want. And I bet some part of you does too. And let me just add that you're not stuck with one thing. If you decide today that you want to be a premier podcast host, you can go all in on that want. And then six months from now, a year from now, that might lead you to, oh, actually, I want to be a premier YouTube channel. You know, it's usually small little changes that happen, but deciding to want something And to go all in on that want is a worthy exercise, even if you change direction. Yes. And as you're talking, I I realize what my my block has had been. I don't know if it still is. I think it probably is in some ways. I didn't know what would be, what is even possible to want. So, and I found that once I overcame my fear of speaking, that kind of, and that's why I say in my book, you know, um, delight in the limelight, overcome your fear of being seen and realize your dreams. Because previous, I I couldn't even allow, I couldn't figure out what would a dream be that I would want. Mm -hmm. And it sometimes takes hearing what other people want. Like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I could imagine that. It it often takes that. And a part of that, Linda, is we don't think it's realistic. So you might know, people in the audience might know that they want to start their own business and make it into a multi-six-figure business or a seven-figure business, but they just don't think that's realistic for them. And so they don't even bother wanting it because it seems like a pipe dream. I will say this. Have you heard the story of the four-minute mile? So the the first person who ran a four-minute mile, his name is Roger something. Before he ran the four-minute mile, no one had ever done it. And they thought it was impossible. And so people just said, it's impossible. A human being can't go that fast. Once he ran the four minute mile, within the year, many other people had done it because all of a sudden it wasn't unrealistic. It was something they could work towards. It was something they could train towards. It was something that they actually could do. And so when you say, I just didn't know what was possible, part of it is seeing other people doing the things. And that's why it's so important that women like you and I show other women what is possible so that it becomes not only possible, but realistic for the women watching and listening to do it as well. Yeah, so important. And that's why it's like we do lift one another up. I know that's what I'm here for. It's like, I figured something out. I want to help other people. You figured something out. You want to help other people. That's absolutely right. And if I can do the thing, then it means that you can do it as well. We're not unicorns. Yeah. So let's move on to uh, how we advocate. Like, how do you, you talk about building belief. Um, I know you also talk about the three C's of an advocate. How do you want to unpack that? So let's start with, let's start with where we, where we left off with the idea of knowing what you want be willing to ask for it, and then asking effectively. A lot of the first part, knowing what you want and being willing to ask for it, that is what I call an inner jury problem. So we all have our juries in the outer world, which we'll get to. Your jury might be your clients, your customers, your friends, your family. If you're a teacher, they're your students. If you're a doctor, they're your patients. The people you want to influence and persuade and change their beliefs. That's your jury. But every one of us has an inner jury 
that's listening to all of the voices in our head. And we all have them. If you read Ethan Cross's book, Chatter, it will be a deep dive into we're not schizophrenic if we have a lot of voices in our heads and deciding what to believe. We are constantly doing that. We are constantly choosing what to believe. To get back to your example, there's an inner voice that says that's not realistic. That's not possible. You can't do that. Ideally, there's another voice saying maybe you could. Maybe that is possible. And so the first thing that you want to do as an advocate is build your own belief first. Help your inner jury to believe in what you want to get. So let's go back to, I don't believe it's possible. If you don't believe it's possible, it's going to be very hard to help other people believe it's possible or to sell that thing. But once you have your inner jury in line and the way that we persuade our inner jury is very similar to the way that we persuade our outer juries. But we start there. The first question I often ask people is, who is your jury? And once you know whether you're persuading yourself or someone else, then we get into the three C's, which I can address now, but I want to make sure that that part's clear. So uh, who are you trying to persuade inside yourself? So is it yourself or are you in full belief and then it's your client? So let me give you the example of myself. Yesterday, I gave a keynote. My outer jury was the Pennsylvania Osteopathic Medical Association. I wanted to persuade them to pay attention, to actually believe that they could be stronger advocates, to believe that the tools of an advocate would help them with their patients, with their administrators and so forth. That's what I wanted them to believe. Before that, I had to believe that I was of value to them, that the things that I was going to share are going to be worth it, that I was going to serve them in a way that was going to impact their lives. I had to be in full belief of that, my inner jury. And at this point, that's easy for me. There's other beliefs that aren't, but that's easy for me. I know that these tools work because they've worked for so many thousands of people. And then I just had the job of getting in front of that outer jury of mine. So for some things, you are going to be in full belief and you can just kind of check that off your list, but others you're not. And so you need to recognize I'm not in full belief. And if I'm not in full belief, I'm never going to persuade them. So let me work on my inner jury first. So when you say you have an inner jury, does that mean we are there are different parts to ourselves? Yes, I think that, you know, if you read Ethan Cross's work, he's a um, professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, and he's done a lot of research on the chatter in our heads. And there are negative voices in our heads and there are positive voices in our heads. Ideally, you might hear your mother's voice, you might hear your partner's voice, you might hear your children's voice. And so it is, to me, the inner jury, and this is important for people listening, listen to this part very clearly. Your inner jury is not judging you. A a jury's job is not to judge. A jury's job is to listen and to choose. So your inner jury is, to me, it's your higher self. It's your spirit. It's your, you know, it's that part of you that knows what you want really deeply and wants you to have it and believes it's possible for you. But you've got to give her the opportunity to choose the things that are going to work for you. The inner jury is not there to judge so important to remember because that just in itself is such a impactful mindset shift. Well, and that's the thing. When I first started talking about the inner jury, most of my clients thought that was the judgmental part of them. That isn't. It's the nasty attorney who's arguing for your limitations. It's, you know, in my world as a trial attorney, not 95% of trial attorneys are men. So I picture that negative voice as the nasty male attorney. I can see him, right? I've, I've seen them. Um, not all of them, of course, if any of my friends are listening, but there are some that I can actually picture that nasty attorney saying, you're too old, you're past your time, you're never going to do it. It's never going to be enough. This is silly. Who do you think you are? That is that negative, nasty attorney in my head. Sometimes there isn't even a positive attorney countering that case. 
There isn't even a positive attorney in my head making the case for something better. And sometimes that's my job. And then once I decide what I want to believe, I want to believe, let's give an example. I started, I had a very successful, very successful job as a trial attorney. I was a trial attorney for 20 years. I was very good at it. It was my identity. I went right from college to law school, started working at my firm while I was in law school, became a partner when I was 30. So I was a trial attorney and I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do the the work that I'm doing now. It took a very long time to persuade my inner jury that that was possible because I had a negative voice in my head saying, that's not possible for you. You'll never make as much money. You'll never have have as, I mean, so many things. People will judge you, so many things. And I had to pick that apart with another attorney. And I had to collect stories and evidence and energy to support the idea that this is possible. And this will be the best possible thing. And it will serve other people. And I will be happier. And I will be healthier. And I will be better off. And so that took time. It took a good amount of time, probably five years in total, from the time that I had that germ of an idea to the time that I really dissociated from the identity of an attorney. And sometimes it does take time, but the time's going to pass either way. And if I hadn't done that work, I'd still be in a job that didn't fulfill me and didn't make me happy. Mm, Great example. Great. Thank you. And thank you for sharing that because I I think that knowing what someone like yourself goes through to make that kind of pivot is encouraging. You know, it kind of gives it a sense of realism. I mean, obviously everybody's different. Some people may pivot really quickly. Mm-hmm. Some people may take longer, but it gives you an idea of what to expect. And I think our ex- expectations yes. impact our self-belief. Absolutely. Because like if we think it's supposed to be fast or easy or quick or whatever, then we have a different kind of self-belief than if we know that this can take five years. The years are going to pass anyway. Love that you say that. Mm. You may as well be working towards that. And, and then when you pace yourself for what you expect... Yes. And I do think it can happen more quickly. I think it all depends on your belief. If I had believed... That I could, you know, there's that whole saying, leap in the net will appear. I didn't believe that five years ago. And so because I didn't believe that, if I had leapt and just said, see you later, law firm, see you later, client, see you later, all you people who depend on me, I don't think that would have been very successful. So I always say, instead of leaping, I was creeping. I made all (laughs) these little small steps. Like I was, you know, um, Lee Iacocca had a quote that said, you should replant yourself every few years to get new, you know, nourishment from the soil type of thing. And I pictured myself as this like, creeping ivy that was creeping from one pot to another instead of leaping from one pot to another. But I think your belief is what makes things possible. And I didn't believe that that was possible, but I did believe, oh, one keynote, one television show, one chapter of a book. And slowly I've made that transition so that now I'm almost fully in this new pot. But it's, you know, I think that looking at other people and seeing what they've done allows you to see what is possible. Yeah. If you don't get mired in comparison, yeah, yeah. But uh, let's not go there. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's a whole. That's a whole, a whole important thing. topic. But it's but it's true. It's you've got to mm-hmm. you've got to be doing it with the right frame of mind. Yes, and and what I see happening, and what you're also saying is, yeah, it took me five years, but you're doing the work, so it doesn't take someone else five years. I think that that's absolutely right, and serving as the example right. that it can take five years, and those five years can be beautiful years. I wouldn't trade those years for anything. If I could go back in time, I wouldn't leap for a million reasons. So let's go then move into the three C's of an advocate. 
So once you have decided who your jury is, you want to apply these three C's and then we'll talk about how you apply them. But the three C's are compassion, curiosity, and credibility. So I can go through each one with a little bit more depth. Compassion, the way that I talk about compassion is, so Daniel Goleman is the sort of father of empathy. And he's written one of the major books on empathy. He's also contributed to most of the Harvard Business Review um, articles and pieces on empathy. And he talks about empathy as cognitive empathy, which is seeing what other people see, and emotional or effective empathy, which is feeling what they feel. For an advocate, all that matters, and sometimes it's far more important, to see what other people see. If you feel what they feel, when you're advocating, it's not effective. You can, if they're feeling anxiety, stress, frustration, fear, disbelief, you don't want to feel what they feel because it will take you out of your belief. But if you see what they see, oh, this may be giving them some doubt. Oh, this may be making them wonder whether I'm telling the truth. Oh, this is not speaking to them in the way that I want to. So you see their perspective and then you put it into action. You do something to serve that perspective. That's my definition of compassion. So the best example that I give, and, and I just want to make sure we're, we're saying this part, you want to apply this to your inner jury as well. So decide what perspective are you seeing the world from? And is there a different perspective that might be more compassionate for you? That's the inner jury application. But for the outer jury, one of the best ways to talk about this is with the words you use. So in the courtroom, I went second because I was a defense attorney. In my case, it's plaintiff. The plaintiffs went first. And if the plaintiff's attorney got up and turned to the jury and said, this is a case about osteomyelitis, I was internally sort of doing giving myself a high five because there's a saying in the courtroom that if we say one word that the jury doesn't understand, they don't even hear the next 10 words that we say. And so I knew that when he said osteomyelitis, the jury was gone that at least some of those jury members were thinking, I told these lawyers I shouldn't be in this case. I don't know anything about medicine. I don't want to be here. And they're gone. And that is a loss to them and a loss to me. I can't afford to lose 10 words. I would get up and say, this is a case about bone infection. I would see the words through their perspective and speak to their perspective. That is compassionate. That is giving them the tools they need to try the case the way that they took a vow to do at the beginning of the case. See the world from your jury's perspective and then speak to or serve that perspective, not your own. You know, somehow I didn't quite understand that when I read it in the book, the same way as I'm getting it now. The idea of compassion not be about the feeling connection, but the perceptive connection. Yes, And what you're talking about is building bridges between uh, what you're trying to say and where they are. It's everything. It's everything. We so often, we ask for what we want because it's important to us or it's going to serve us or we like it. But no one really cares that much about us. They care more about themselves, right? And And that's just human nature. Now, the people we love hopefully care about us. But ideally, if you can talk about what you want in a way that serves the person, your jury, then they are more likely to give it to you. So it is building bridges so that you understand how you can meet them in the middle and both of you can get what you want. And most things that you're asking for, there is a way that it serves your jury as well. Mm. Okay. So that's the first C is the compassion. What's the next one? The next is curiosity. So 
you know, when I tell people that I was a trial attorney, most of the time, someone will say, I should have been a trial attorney. I'm really good at arguing. But the truth of it is that we only argue a very small portion of the case. The whole case, all I do, Linda, is ask questions. I ask questions of my witnesses to build connections and build credibility and show our compassion and to make the connections between the witness and the jury. And then I ask questions of the other side to knock them down and to hurt their credibility and to show that they don't have compassion and sometimes even to embarrass them and to prove them wrong. Questions are magic. And so the more that we get to asking ourselves questions and then using questions with our juries, the better of an advocate you're going to be. So can you give an example for, let's say, if somebody has a hard time asking for what they want at work or even in their family? Yeah, I think that one of the things that you want to recognize, let's give a really specific example. Mm -hmm. Um, You want to ask for more help around the house, right? You want to ask for more help around the house. I think that one of the first things to do is sit down with your family and say, how do you see your contribution to this house? How much work do you feel like you're doing? What work do you think you're doing to contribute? Because they might say, well, I'm not doing anything, but I shouldn't have to. Or they might have a list of the things that they're doing that you might not see from your perspective. And until you know that, you're not going to be in an effective way, and we'll talk about this in a minute, to collect stories and evidence to support your ask for help. So the first thing is to say, you know, what are you doing? What do you see? And you want to, in the best of all worlds, ask it in a way that doesn't come across as defensive or argumentative. So, you know, I've been thinking about the household chores and the things that we're all doing. Tell me what you want me to know about what you're doing, about Mm -hmm. how you feel like you're contributing. And you might change your perspective. You might be like, you know what, they're doing a whole lot more than I thought that they were. And so this ask, maybe I have to take on that task that they don't like, and then they can take on this task that I don't like. But if you, until you have those answers, that evidence, those stories, you're not going to be as effective of an advocate. Mm-hmm. And then once you have those stories, you could say something like, um, do you see where I'm doing 10 things and you're doing two things? And the things that I'm doing are taking... 10 hours a week and the things that you're doing are taking two hours a week. Do you see a way that we can make that more even? Again, more questions. We don't end with the questions, obviously. There's other ways to push it if we have to. But the questions, questions are so not confrontational. If asked, they can be confrontational. We can do that on purpose. But when they're asked of people that we love with compassion, they're not going to get mad at those questions. Sometimes they get defensive, but rarely. If the questions are really asked, and this is your ballywick with a correct tone and the right body language and the right intention, they will often be received in a much better way than if you go in and say, I do all the work. You don't do any of the work. I'm working 10 hours a week. You're only working two hours a week. You need to do more work. You are very unlikely to get what you want. If you work with questions, you're much more likely to get it. Love that. I'm going to, I'm taking notes. Well, that was that was something that I struggled with a lot in in um, my partnership, and I would I would always be angry, always angry, always angry. Gosh. And I I actually for me I I um, found this book called uh, Happiness Is a Choice by mm. Bears Kaufman, Barry oh, Kaufman. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. He um he has something I don't know if he it still exists. The um, Sunrise Institute they worked with autism very successfully and. I remember being so upset once again, cleaning the stove and thinking, um, that's what was going on in my head. (laughs) Grumble, grumble, grumble. And then I remembered something he said in the book is, is your strategy working? And if it's not, change it. 
And in that moment, I just had this like magical shift where I thought, you know what? I'm going to invite help. If it doesn't happen, I can do it myself or I can learn to live with it. That's a perspective change. And that's the compassion piece, right? You Mm -hmm. told your inner jury, is there another way that we can look at this? Mm -hmm. Is there another perspective that we can take that's going to serve us better? Mm-hmm. And you found you you had you know you had the evidence and the story in that book to allow that positive attorney to give you another perspective. I think that that's phenomenal. Well, thank you for for showing me how I what I was doing. <laughs> it's phenomenal when you can do that. It's yeah. it's so nice to be able to change your thoughts without having to change other people to make that happen. Mm-hmm. It was huge. It was huge, um, and it, it served me very well. And just to give you a little update, things have totally changed. Yeah. Totally changed. Yeah. This guy is cleaner than I am. He's and I say, just just tell me if you want me to clean that corner out. I'll do it. <laughs> and sometimes that's all it takes. Your energy changes when you change your perspective. Yeah. And then the people around you feel that new energy. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really good. I have no complaints on that. So good. So let's get to the last C. Last C is the most important C, Linda. It's credibility. So I always say, people always ask me which C is the most important. And I, without hesitation, credibility, because if they don't believe you, you can't win. You know, people might think that you're nice, you're kind, you're passionate, you're smart, you're prepared. But if they don't believe you, you can't win. In the courtroom, that was very, very clear. And so you want to build that belief and the way that, and you want to go back to the inner jury, you have to believe first. Remember your belief is the foundation of their belief. Mm -hmm. It's the foundation upon which they build their belief. So that always comes first. And so there's a belief triangle that applies to both of your juries. We say like, oh, I want to believe in myself. That's part of it. But the belief triangle is this. One side is they have to believe you. When you make a promise, you'll keep it. When you set an expectation, you'll meet it. And if you can't, you own it. And that means that you have to believe you as well. When you make yourself a promise that you're going to get up in the morning at five, when the alarm goes off, you get up at five. When you make yourself a promise that you're going to do five emails to potential clients, you do those five emails. That's how you build that kind of credibility with yourself. And then with your outer jury, it's the same deal. If you're going to show up on time, you show up on time, but you make promises and keep them. That is the believe you piece. The next piece is the believe in you piece. And this is where, if we're talking about our inner jury, the imposter syndrome, which I hate that term, um, but it's really, it's your curriculum vitae. It's your experience. It's your training. It's your education. And for anyone listening who's thinking, well, I don't have any of those things. Yes, you do. Transferable skills is what we're talking about. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, I could use it to as evidence that you can do the thing you want to do. It's just playing with the evidence. So let me give you an example. If I figured out how to do this StreamYard, which is the software that we're using for this call, and I'd never used it before, that I would write down in my evidence journal, which is at the end of the night, I write down three pieces of evidence that I want to look back on to support myself when my belief falters. And one of them might be uh, figured out how to use StreamYard. And that is evidence of my ability to figure out technology, my ability to be patient when I don't understand things, my ability to figure things out in general. So take the things that you do and just say, what is this evidence of? And we could play with that all day. But that's the believe in you piece. And then again, with people outside of you, it's looking at your experience, looking at your training and showing them how it applies to what they want. And then the most important part of the belief triangle and the part we don't talk about enough is believe that you can help them. 
So when it comes to your inner jury, that's believing that you have your own back, that you have the authority in your life, that you know what's right for you and you're going to do what's right for you. And when it comes to your outer jury, it goes back to those 10 words that we talked about. It's that I know how to serve you. I can help you. I understand you and your problems and your concerns and your fears and your pain. And I can speak to that. And that's the most important part of credibility building. And sometimes the part that we forget to address. Mm, Yes. You know, I'm thinking back to uh, when I first got started uh, in course creation and I ran a a challenge, a free five-day challenge, and I wanted to sell a course afterwards and nobody bought. And I reached out to some people and I said, "Um, why didn't you buy? And they said, well, you didn't really have a lot of enthusiasm for it. It's everything. It's everything. It's your belief. Mm -hmm. People want to believe. You know, the people who attended the five-day challenge, they wanted to believe that that was going to make an impact for you. And they sometimes need to lean on your belief because they don't believe. And if you don't believe, then it's not a strong enough foundation for them to lean on. You know, there's nothing there. And so of course they're not going to buy. I have struggled with the same thing. No one, very few people get this perfectly from the start. Very few people. And if you get it perfectly from the start in business, you probably don't get it the perfectly from the start in relationships or in your health. You know, everybody has an area where this falters, but your work is to build your own belief. And that's completely possible. It's completely within your skill set when you apply these tools. Yes. But that's a perfect example, Linda. Yes. And of course, over the years, as you get more evidence of your efficacy, then you have more self-belief. That's right. And, and it, it builds because now when people come and they say, oh my God, I'm so afraid of speaking, my heart races, my mouth goes dry, I'm in a panic. Can you really help me? And I say, yes, I can. Yeah. Because right. I know I can. I have the evidence that... It- That's exactly right. And, and as you collect more evidence, one of the things when I'm talking about the believe in you piece, I have a credibility formula that is C equals E squared. It's evidence times energy. As you collect more evidence, you gain more energy of belief and that energy of belief makes more people buy in this case. And so then you collect more evidence and then you get more energy of belief and then more people buy and it's this beautiful cycle. But when you don't have either one of those things, you've got to really play with the evidence. So the first person who said, can you really help me? And you faltered. It's really doing the work of saying, well, I really helped myself. And I know that these tools work because I've seen them work. And I learned them from this person and they made them work. You've got to play with the evidence to find something to believe before you get into that cycle where it's just like momentum has come. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. So um, are we missing anything with the three C's that you want to add? No, no. Those are the three C's. Great. Compassion, curiosity, and credibility. Great. And and the credibility having three parts. Right. The belief triangle. Believe you believe in you and believe that you can help them. Yeah. Yeah. It's so nice. So when you're asking, how does this credibility triangle work? So you have to make sure when you're asking for something that you want, and again, to give specific examples always makes it easier. So let's imagine that this time you're asking for a raise. 
right? And you want the person who you're asking for a raise to believe you that you're going to be the value that you want in the raise or that you have been the value that you want in a raise. And so ideally, you've built that up in your relationship. You've made promises and kept them, set expectations and met them. And so you can look to that as evidence that they can believe you. If you go into them and say, well, listen, I have um, worked X number of hours and brought in X number of clients and they can believe you because what you're saying is true. Or I will bring in X number of clients and they can believe you because you've built that belief in the past. So that's the believe you piece. Believe in you piece is to say, I have the capability to bring in new clients because I've met these people who are in the, are my network, who are eager to buy this type of thing. And I know that I can convert some of them over to at least come and meet with us and to meet with you guys, right? So you're building the believe in you piece. That's the evidence and the stories that support that. And then believe that you can help them is both of those things. We're talking about what's important to them, the ROI to them. It's not, you know, I used to be um, a managing partner at my law firm. And when people will come in for raises and say, well, I really need the money uh, to pay my bills, you know, to pay, I just bought a new house. That's, I'm sorry, or that's good for you or whatever, but that doesn't serve the firm, right? And the partners and the people that I have to answer to as far as why would we give this person a raise, especially if this other person has brought in so many clients and is working so many hours. If instead that person had come to me and said, I know I can bring in more clients. I know that I can do work more hours. I know that I can try more cases. That is of value to the firm. If I could, That can help me. And so I'm more likely to give it to them. Yes. Yes. That's great. Okay. Well, I feel like um, we've covered a lot, but I can't help but wanting to ask you some, I don't know, some people call it lightning questions. I know they're, they, they're big topics, but I'm just curious what you would say, because I think that people are going to wonder about some of these things. One is, um, how do you embrace rejection? I don't. <laughs> I definitely don't embrace it. I I um, reframe it. Mm. So again, it's that compassion piece and it's seeing things from a different perspective. I actually had, was asked a similar question at the keynote I gave yesterday. And um, an example I gave is one of the first cases I've lost. I lost. It wasn't the first case I lost. But when you lose a case, it's rejection. They have rejected your story, your um, your evidence, your clients, your credibility, and it hurts. I cry. Every time I lose, I cry. Not in the courtroom anymore. Um, on my way home, as I drag my trial back home. But what I have to do, and this takes time, and it takes work on the inner jury, I have to see the loss from a different perspective. Sometimes it is... This is a little bit harder in trial law because every jury is different. And so, and like drastically different. So it's not as though you could say, well, I did this and next time I would do this because with a different jury, it might work totally differently. But to sometimes say, you know what, I was, I, that cross-examination, I shouldn't have asked as many questions or I shouldn't ask any questions of um, a person who's that badly injured or, you know, you sort of learn from each law. So that might be my reframe. That might be my new perspective that this was a case where I learned more than I've ever learned. Oftentimes my reframe was, this was as it was meant to be. The people who won this case and that they would win money on the other side, 
I would tell myself stories and I would collect evidence to support that story. This woman's going to use this money to educate her child. And he's going to go on to do something huge in this world that would not have happened if he had not, they had not received this money at this time. And that for me was a different perspective that made me feel better. And for, for everyone listening, you've got to play with it yourself. You've got to see what is the story that actually makes you feel better. Because for some of you, you might be like, I, I can't get behind that at all. Or that doesn't make me feel better at all. So you play with it until you find something that actually gives you that feeling of relief from the rejection. And then you start to create stories and evidence to back up that thought so that you can actually believe it. Yeah. That wasn't a lightning answer, but no, it, it wasn't. Was it wasn't, but it was a good one. It was a good one. And I totally, I, I totally agree about... I do that all the time. Reframing. If you have a choice to think about something in a way that makes you feel good or makes you feel bad, why not choose the one that makes you feel better? So I think that's right. But I think that sometimes people think they don't have that choice. Yes. yes. And we always do. Yeah. As hard as that is to accept sometimes. Yeah. One thing that you said in one of the books, I can't remember which one, uh, just because your voice is soft or shaky doesn't mean that your message isn't loud and clear. Can you just... Just expand a, a bit on that. Yeah, it's so important. And this is your work, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the other episodes of the podcast, they're so wonderful on this point and so many other points that are important when you're advocating for yourself. Um, many people think that, well, I'm shy. I'm an introvert. I don't like to speak up. I don't want to ask. When I ask, I get nervous. I'll tell you the truth, Linda. When I get frustrated, angry, upset, I cry. I am a crier. And so there have been times in the courtroom, as a woman in the courtroom, I've never been comfortable crying. I see men do it often, but I, that's just not been something I do. But I can feel it in my throat and my voice sounds different. It has never stopped me from winning, ever. You can have a shaky voice. Shaky voices still win. You just have to be sure that you don't let the shaky voice stop you from speaking at all. Mm. And that's your work. Mm. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Last question. You talk about the role of laughter and laughing sometimes. Why talk about that a little bit? Why is it important? Oh my gosh, it's so important. At the beginning of my career, and for most of my career, I thought that there was no room for laughter in the courtroom. You know, my cases involved people who were sometimes catastrophically injured, babies, sad, sad situations. And so I felt if the jury saw me smiling or laughing, that they would feel like I wasn't taking things seriously. And so I shut down that part of myself and I love to laugh. I, you know, I, I think laughter is so important. It's good for our chemistry. It's good for our body language. It's good for our tone of voice. And then I was beat by a woman who laughed all the time in the courtroom to the point that it was almost like, I was like, goodness gracious, this isn't a party. Calm down. But she won. And I realized that me holding back my laughter is not what was allowing for my wins. And now I still don't laugh uproariously. I think I just don't think it's the right setting, but I allow laughter to be there. One of my favorite quotes, and it's unattributed, so I don't know whose it is, but it's when you're having a bad day, try to think of your day as a comedy instead of a tragedy. Mm. And when you do that, you can usually find something to laugh at. And when you do that, it's a good way to do that compassion and change your perspective. Oh, that's so great. I love that. I'm going to I'm gonna write that down and put it on a post-it. I am wondering, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to leave the audience with today? I don't think so. I think the thing that I always want to sort of wrap up with is for the people listening to know that you are your own best advocate. No one, no one, no one can do it better than you can. That doesn't mean 
this is important, that we shouldn't ask other people to advocate for us because we should. But in doing so, we are advocating. And so you, only you know what you want. I mean, to your point at the very beginning of this interview, and only you know why you want it and you have the passion and the heart for it. And so when you take that on and recognize that I must be my own best advocate, then you will start learning the tools to do it. And then it just gets easier and easier and better and better. And you start getting more and more of what you want. And then we feel like we're growing and we're getting older and wiser and all that good stuff. Absolutely. Because well, that's I think that ultimately is what brings us a lot of satisfaction is the feeling that we are growing. That's right. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you so much. Where can people find you? The easiest way to find me is my website is um, advocatetowin.com. And I have a podcast called The Elegant Warrior, where we talk about these things and I interview people like you yes, and I've others. Yes, it was wonderful. So um, those are the two places. And then on on Instagram, I'm active on Instagram. And on Instagram, I'm at an elegant warrior. And A-N, Elegant Warrior. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you, Heather. This has been fantastic. I love the work that you're doing. I love the way you frame your ideas. They're so accessible and tangible and actionable. Thank you so much for having me, Linda. It's been a pleasure. Great. So until we meet again, I'm wishing you speaking confidence and delight in the limelight. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for listening to Delight in the Limelight. I hope you feel a little more hopeful and excited about speaking in public. If you like the show, recommend it to someone you know. And if you haven't yet read the book, Delight in the Limelight, you can get it online or at your favorite bookstore or request it from your local library. Remember, speaking is our human design. Let's learn to delight in it together.